welcome to Kingdom in Context. The Creator never intended for us to be confused by His words. He gave us His words of life, and He gave them in context, to be understood and beneficial to our walk with Him. This channel's goal is to bring clarity to some of the misconceptions that have formed over time among believers and taught by others, however innocent and well intended. The scriptures make complete sense when we keep them in context of His coming kingdom and His coming King, Jesus the Messiah. If you're blessed by what we're doing with this channel and feel led to support us, visit the video description below where we have a PayPal option, a monthly Patreon option, or a traditional P.O. Box address. Thank you, and remember, context creates comprehension. Hi, welcome back to Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean Griffin, and I'm accompanied by my awesome co-host. Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, how's it going, brother? I'm excited for this episode. What's up, Ken? It's going well, and I uh, hope you're doing well. Man, I'm, I too am excited for this episode because we get to finish uh, the first chapter of Jubilees and break it down line by line. It's an exciting chapter, brother. There's so much, so much fun stuff to look at in here that I'm, I'm thank you for joining us, viewer. Uh, I hope that this is uh, not your first time to see Honor of Kings. Hopefully you've been watching us all last season and you're excited about season two. But if this is your first time, um, our whole goal here is that we're looking at some of the books that were not included in the American canon of 66. We're also looking at some of the apocryphal books that used to be in the canon, but were removed several hundred years ago. And so I'm excited to take a look at these and see why weren't they put in? Why were they removed? What's in them? Do they say something in, in dire contrast to the American canon of 66? Um, it's it's an adventure, and it's what we consider to be an honor of kings. And so uh, thank you for joining us. Make sure to hit the, the subscribe button and the little bell for notifications so you don't miss every new episode we put out. And also, by the way, uh, Ken Heiderbrecht, my co-host, he has his own channel. You want to tell him about your channel, Ken? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, hanging on his words, which you can see right here. And... Uh... You can go to YouTube, type that in, and I've got several videos that I've, I've put out the last four months or so, and uh, it's been fun, Sean. I, I just love doing it. I love interacting with people through that um, medium, and it's just a passion of mine, just like this is, brother. And it's talking about God's Word in a way that hopefully is unique, creative, and it draws people into having a desire and a, a passion and zeal for the Father's Word and the words that may have been taken out nefariously which is why my heart also is for this type of program where we can test these books and and see you know what the deal is why they were moved because sean you and i were not consulted when this decision was made because so far i think we've come across some of these books and we agree that they should have been left in and they should be considered scripture so i'm really honored to be doing this and um yeah so we should just go and do it buddy yeah, we're gonna. Last week we ended um, on the fifteenth chapter of the book of Jubilees, the first. Excuse me, uh, the fifteenth verse of the first chapter of Jubilees, and so we're just gonna pick up the remainder of that chapter this week, and maybe get to chapter two. I'm not sure, but either way, we'll. Um, uh, this depends on how much how much meat is in there that we can break down, you know, because uh, sometimes it takes a minute to chew on and, and really absorb like what it's saying, and are there any parallels that we can find in the American canon? So I'm anxious to get to it. Do you want to read the first uh, first verse here in 16, Ken? I'd love to. All right, Jubilees 1, verse 16. 
And it says, and I will build my sanctuary in their midst and I will dwell with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people in truth and righteousness. And I will not forsake them nor fail them for I am the Lord, their God. So Sean, just a little bit of context, maybe um, leading up to those two verses that I just read for the viewers that are watching. Um, the previous verses to the ones I just read are talking about how essentially Yahweh's prophesying, saying that his people will turn away from him when they go into the land. They won't do what they're supposed to be doing. They're going to start disobeying him. They won't keep his laws, his commandments. They'll fall into idolatry and adultery. And eventually they're going to be scattered and dispersed among the nations. And then there's going to come a time when they're going to start waking up and desiring to do these things again that, that the Father has commanded his people to do. And so we have this contextual time qualifier here leading up to these verses that I just read that I think you and I both agree is referring to the day of the Lord when he starts building his sanctuary in, his, in our midst and will dwell with us. And it's prophesied in several different places, right? Yeah, I think one of the places that I'd, I'd remember it being in the canon is in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37. And if, if you'll let me just real quick, I'll read a couple of verses that uh, I think parallels what we just read in Jubilees. It's here, verse starting at verse 24 of Ezekiel 37. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There's a lot of forevers in there, Ken. There are. Yeah. He's <laughs> trying right. to tell us that this is something that is never ending. eh? That's right. Yeah. So he's talking about um, dwelling with them, having the sanctuary in the midst of them. And I think this is, I mean, that's, that's very close to what we just read in uh, Jubilee 16. Yeah, so beautiful. I like I like yeah. how in verse 26 there that you just read, it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it's going to be an everlasting covenant with them. And so I think you and I both agree that that covenant of peace is in reference to what we would consider the new covenant, right? When right. the law is written on our hearts of newly circumcised flesh and we can instinctually follow his commandments without fail. And it's going to be an amazing time when that happens, because that's kind of what our father, I believe, wants us to desire is to follow him with all our ways. I mean, that's part of the commandments that were given to Moses and Israel is to do it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And while we're in these corruptible bodies of flesh that don't love the God or don't love God and his spiritual law, it, it's, it's harder to do. But the father does desire for us to do that. And yeah. when this new covenant takes place, this covenant of peace, um, it's going to be beautiful, Sean, because we'll never have to worry about disappointing our, our Abba again. Eh? That's right. Yeah. Currently in this, in this body, that's that before the resurrection, we deal with disciplining ourselves, but this covenant of peace here is granted to us after the resurrection where he is, like you said, he's put his law in our hearts. It's where we don't have to do discipline ourselves. We just will do it, you know, because we'll be like Jesus, like a resurrected Yeshua. Yeah. So it's a beautiful promise. Um, yeah, beautiful promise. And that, and I think that's a great indicator for the viewer to really, if you want to do a, kind of an in-depth study on that covenant of peace, uh, Ken and I actually break that down on a, on a different show that is, it's actually on, uh, on my channel. It's called, Are You in the New Covenant? Parts 1, 2, and 3. So you're welcome to go check that out um, if you have a chance after this video. 
But yeah, um, what else sticks out in this particular passage? Well, verse 17, Sean, where it says, I will not forsake them nor fail them, for I am Yahweh their God. And it's not like he's totally forsaken us, but when we really try to wrap our minds around what the implications of that promise means, it's he will never turn his face from us again, right? He will never, because he can't be around such sinful natures. And that's, that is part of the amazing promise of what's to come is that we're going to have things made renewed. And along with that is the ability to dwell among our father and he's never going to be far from us. Right. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. That's so, um, man. It's just a beautiful promise. Yeah. Okay. So I'll pick up here in looks here in, in verse 18. It says, and Moses fell on his face and prayed and said, Oh Lord, my God, do not forsake your people and your inheritance so that they should wander in the air of their hearts. Do not deliver them into the hands of their enemies, the Gentiles, lest they should rule over them and cause them to sin against you. Let your mercy, O Lord, be lifted upon your people and create in them an upright spirit. And let not the spirit of Belial rule over them to accuse them before you and to ensnare them from all the paths of righteousness so that they may perish from before your face. But they are your people and your inheritance, which you have delivered with your great power from the hands of the Egyptians. Create in them a clean heart and a holy spirit. Let them not be ensnared in their sins from henceforth until eternity. And the Lord said to Moses, I know their contrariness and their thoughts and their stiff neckness. And they will not obey and they will not be obedient until they confess their own sin and the sin of their fathers. And after this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart, with all their soul. And I will circumcise the foreskin of their heart and the foreskin of the heart of their seed. And I will create in them a Holy Spirit and I will cleanse them so that they shall not turn away from me from that day into eternity. And their souls will cleave to me and to all my commandments and they will fulfill my commandments. And I will be their father and they shall be my children. And they shall all be called children of the living God. And every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness and that I love them. Yeah, that's just beautiful, Sean. I like how Moses is this so caring and loving for his people. I mean, we, we see that even earlier in the Exodus, um, the book of Exodus, rather, where he's he sees one of his kinsmen being poorly mistreated by another individual. Actually, I think the implication there is that the guy was trying to kill him. And so Moses comes in and, and helps him out and ends up, you know, killing the guy himself. But he just loves his people, right? And see, we he's just the perfect mediator, the perfect person to go before the father for the people, right? Because he has that heart and that desire. And we see that over and over again from this character. He's just, yeah, he's willing to bow down prostrate himself before the father and say, please do not do this. And then even earlier on, we see that he, he says that he's, if, if it's, if it can be done, you can blot my name out of the book of life. If it means saving these people. Right. So he's willing to sacrifice his own eschatological, you know, lifestyle, I guess you could say his, his future resurrection. If it means helping save his other brothers, which is incredible. What is that? what first John three talks about greater than love is no man than that's someone who laid down their life for their brothers. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, we see that kind of exemplified a little bit in Moses' behavior for sure. And he's doing it here, you know, because uh, of course, as if the, if the reader didn't see episode one, as we discussed in the very first verses of Jubilees chapter one, this whole conversation we're reading between Moses and Yahweh is taking place on Mount Sinai during the 40 days and nights that he was on the mountain fasting. And from what we can tell, this is actually the first 40 days and nights before he breaks the tablets, before the golden calf sin. And so therefore, um, that's that's kind of the timing of this particular uh, conversation we're having. And this is where he's getting 
according to the claim of Jubilees, that this conversation is happening in this moment. This is where he's getting all this destruction, and this is where the rest of the entire book is going to take place in that 40 days and 40 nights Moses was on the mountain. So in case you ever wondered, what was Moses doing up there all that time? Well, the book of Jubilees <laughs> makes the claim to tell you what he was doing up there, and it's this entire book he was learning. Um, according to what this book claims, he's going to be learning the reasons for all the laws that he's receiving um, and back history leading up from Adam all the way up to the point of Sinai and all the patriarchs that came before him. And so that's, you know, there's a lot of history here. And this is why Moses is calling him his, his people and calling him, you know, this isn't just he's not calling him his people just because they made a covenant five chapters or a few chapters earlier in Exodus 19 and 20. Because they were already his people, right? He that's the whole point of bringing them out of Egypt, right? Because yeah. Pharaoh was un, unkind to his people. And so, um, and this is from the extended promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I just I, I agree with what you what you were analyzing there, Ken. And I just think it's amazing because he's praying. Moses is actually praying here in verse uh, 8 19, where he says, uh, let your mercy, O Lord, be lifted up on upon your people, creating them an upright spirit, and let not the spirit of Belial rule over them to accuse them before you. Um, and so he's asking for an upright spirit to be created in them. And a few verses down, Yahweh responds and he's like, yeah, I, I'm going to do that. But there's some things that have to happen first. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a time and, and place for that. Yeah. yeah, there's. And in the meantime, they're stiff neck, contrary, you know, and they're not obedient. But um, in the future is when he does this. And this is what Ken and I believe is the moment of the first resurrection that's explained all throughout scripture. Yeah. But an interesting point of note, Ken, I want to point out is, is this word belly ire. You see that in verse 19? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting, is, it's another name, right? Another name for our, our chief adversary. Yeah. And so uh, don't we see that in the canon? Is that in the, in the Gospels, I think? Yeah, we see it in 2 Corinthians 6.15, um, where Paul mentions it. Um, we also see it in 1 Samuel, I think in Deuteronomy 13.13 13 as well. There's a couple places that we see this name. So it's not, you know, it's not an isolated new name um, solely to this book. but uh, Apparently, it means wicked one and worthlessness in the Hebrew. So, I mean, that goes in line with this this main antagonist, right? So, yeah, and yeah, that verse you cited there from Second Corinthians six fifteen, uh, just real quick, it says, "Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever?" Um, well, you know what? Let me just go ahead and read fourteen as well, because that gives the the viewer a little more context to that concept. But because he's basically he's com comparing and contrasting good and bad. He's saying in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. And so we actually see this a uh, couple, a little bit, don't we, Ken? Whereas the translation from the Greek or the Latin in the original KJV, which is what this, this Jubilees, I think is was originally kind of translated along that vein. Yes. Um, we see a couple words where there's like a single letter that's different. Yeah, Bel-I-R, bel it, it all yeah. depends how it was transliterated, but yeah. It's, but it's, it's, a, it's the same thing. Not only is it is it used interchangeably in different books, but obviously the context is the same because Jubilees is saying, let, you know, create an upright spirit in them so that, and let not the spirit of bel rule over them, which would be something contrary to an upright spirit. Yeah, that's which right. would be darkness, you know what I'm saying? And that's what we don't want, um, which is, to me, this is another one of the many names of Satan. Would you agree, Ken? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. And we would, we're going to even see that later on in, in chapters, was it chapter 10, Sean, in Jubilees, where we see that uh, 
the Satan is tied to another name called Mastema, which just means yeah. in the Hebrew enmity. So it's another characteristic of this antagonist that uh, he's a man of many names, just like the other man that we know that has many names that's going to be reappearing in days ahead. Yeah, which it's kind of like the MO of the, the occult, right? They always trying to like re rebrand uh, themselves for new new cultures and new generations with different names um, to deceive them. So, yeah, that's very interesting. But um, so, yeah, Sean, in verse 19, though, you had mentioned um, or it says, let thy mercy, O Lord, be lifted up upon thy people and create in them an upright spirit and let them not have the spirit of Belial rule over them. So that upright spirit um doesn't david mention something like that i think it's in like psalm was it psalm 50 or 51 where he says create in me a clean heart and upright heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me and yeah. so he's like he i think during that moment when he had sinned greatly he's still hoping because i believe 100 that david knew all about the resurrection that this contextually is what he was praying for father please create in me a new heart a new spirit like don't cast me away from your presence. Like I want to be able to be in your presence, you know, on that great day. And so it's just interesting because, you know, we have this and creating them an upright spirit. And as you said, um, creating them a clean heart in verse 20 and a Holy spirit. Um, there's, there's a time and a place for that. Right. And so that, that's just reminds me of another prophet, second Ezra's um, or the prophet Ezra recorded in second Ezra's chapter three, Verses 18 to 22, I'm just going to quickly read that, Sean, where it says, you did bend down the heavens and shake the earth. So this is this is the Sinai moment where, where Yahweh's coming down onto the mountain and, and Ezra's just reiterating it in, uh, at a different angle. It says, thou did bend down the heavens and shake the earth and move the world and make the depths to tremble and trouble the times. And your glory passed through the four gates of fire and earthquake and wind and ice to give the law to the descendants of Jacob and like commandment to the posterity of Israel. Yet you did not take away from them their evil heart, so that the law might bring forth fruit in them. For the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. Thus the disease became permanent. The law was in the people's heart along with the evil root, but what was good departed and the evil remained. So I know I, I mentioned that actually in the previous episode, but it's just interesting here that we have this concept of the law that brings forth fruit right the spiritual law that paul mentions in romans 7 14 that is never going away ever because we see that it's going to be in the millennial reign it's going to come forth from zion and it's just it's a good thing even though we've been programmed since young ages to kind of consider it to be bonded sean but it it, it appears here in, in second ezra is that it's supposed to bring forth fruit. And the fact that it doesn't in many people's lives is because we have the root of evil in our hearts. And so what Moses is saying here in Jubilees is that essentially give them this new heart where they can just have this fruit flowing from them all the time. And the father says, there's a time, there's a time set aside for that. And it's even recorded in, in second Ezra that it's a different time when this is going to take place. But it's just fascinating to me, Sean, that, that this is, once again, what is part of the new covenant on the day of the Lord, when we will be showing forth all those fruits of the spirit that, you know, Paul says, that if you have the spirit of God in you, Galatians five, you're going to be throwing, showing these types of fruit, right? Well said, Ken. Well said. That's, um, yeah, I love second Ezra. So I think we're going to have a fun time looking at that one later as well. Here in verse 20, um, 
I think it's interesting because he's kind of amplifying it up, right? Because he's he's reminding them that Yahweh brought them out of the power of the Egyptians. Of course, we see that reiterated everywhere in Exodus and the Psalms and many places in the canon. But he calls the people Yahweh's inheritance. And I think that that's really interesting, right? Yeah, for sure. Because that is what is promised to the Messiah. I think it's in Isaiah 49. This is Ken Heidelberg here at Hanging on His Words. Because I love the Father and His only begotten Son so very much, and I'm extremely excited about their kingdom to come, I want to communicate their message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to you and to anyone who will listen, as every human being is a part of this extraordinary narrative. So, feel free to find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and, yes, the Twitters, to join in on what the Father is doing in these last days. Um... That's what I, I mean. Let me try to check that out real quick. But I believe it's in Isaiah 49 where he actually tells um, it's speaking and prophesying of the Messiah. And he says, or is it Psalm 2 where he says, ask me and I'll give the nations to you as your inheritance. Yeah, I think maybe that's Psalm two. So uh, I think that that's a fascinating concept because now, of course, we we hope that the viewer, um, if you've been following Ken and I's channel for any length of time, where you would probably already know that we are not equating the Messiah to Yahweh. We do believe what the scriptures say that. The Messiah, who we know as Yeshua of Nazareth, or Jesus, Jesus Christ, that he is the son of Yahweh that was sent to be our Messiah, but he's not Yahweh himself. The Father has named himself as Yahweh, and that's who that's who Ken and I believe is that is being spoken through through the agency of the angel here in Mount Sinai to Moses. But um, but yeah, that's um, but I believe when he's but the, the people are granted to the Messiah as king under his kingship. Because as, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 and many other places, like he is the agent of the father to reign as king over Zion. So he is uh, firstborn of all of Israel. He's firstborn of the, of the first resurrection, uh, firstborn among the dead, first of the church. Right. He is like Ephesians 5, like talks about how Yeshua is our Lord, just like God, the father is, you know, is the, the God of Yeshua, basically. And so even though we refer to as uh, Yeshua as God. Um, because he's walking in the agency of the Father, and he's the he's a, he'll be our visual representation of the Father. Um, I think it's very fascinating that uh, just we have a lot of the terminology spoken of of Yahweh is kind of encompassed in the Son, if I could put it like that. Yeah. Because since he'll be walking as the representative of the Father, as Hebrews one chapter verses one through three tell us, yeah. here in Psalm two, real quick, it just says in verse eight. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And of course, he's talking to, well, let me start in verse six, because this is where Yahweh is introducing the person he's talking to in verse eight. He says, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. 
So suddenly verse seven switches to now the son who was just called the, the one installed as king earlier is now talking back to Yahweh, you know, and, he, and he's and then Yahweh in verse eight is talking back to the son in this conversation. He says, ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance at the very ends of the earth as your possession. Yeah. So from what I can tell, that seems to be the same topic that is being relayed here in verse 20 at the very beginning. Yeah, it's a very unique dialogue going on between the father and the son there that if you don't pay attention to the kind of the personal pronouns that are going on there, you can get kind of confused as to who's who's speaking about who and you know what I mean, vice versa. So we're actually going to touch base on that in uh, a little bit, I think, further down in, in the latter portions of this first chapter of Jubilees, but um, yeah. like considering Isaiah 9 and all that too. But okay, so Sean in verse 22 where it says, and after this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart and with all their soul. And then they're going to circumcise, they're going to have their heart circumcised and stuff like that. I think it actually corresponds quite well with um, Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 28. I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Yahweh God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And verse 24 here is really interesting. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. So that's really fascinating, Sean, because I mean, it's, it perfectly parallels with what we just read here in Jubilees about having the new spirit. It even says in, in verse 22 here in Jubilees that he created them a holy spirit. I know that's, that is the implication when we refer to the Ezekiel passage here when it says, I will put a new spirit within you, but it's, we get further, you know, um, meaning, I guess that it's, it's the Holy spirit that he's going to put within us as we are created as spirit and water beings, according to John three, which Yeshua says we must be made of in order to enter into the, the father's kingdom, right? Even to be right. with him when he dwells among us. So yeah, uh, not the spirit that's a deposit like we have now, the exactly. guarantee but the whole a set apart spirit that we're made with that's totally different like you sure received it in his resurrection body yeah. so absolutely man that's a great man ezekiel's just so awesome <laughs> so awesome so before ezekiel here on mount sinai we got these same concepts being referenced in the book of jubilees so this is interesting yeah. um, and also it looks like uh that you, you kind of already covered it really um verse 23 and 24 the whole concept you read there and that's just it's interesting um, because he's telling him after all this happens here in verse 25 and after all these promises and this back and forth conversation about, I know they're going to rebel and but don't worry at the appointed time, I'll create an upright spirit within them. And then he says to Moses, now you write down for yourself all these words, which I declared you on this mountain, the first and the last, which shall come to pass in the days of the divisions of the days, of the law and the testimony. Now, the reason I'm, I'm pointing this out is because we, in, in the beginning of last episode, we actually read this same thing up in verse like two. Or verse four, I think it was, right? Moses on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. God taught him the earlier and later history of the division of the days of the law and the testimony. Except in verse 25, it expounds. So this is kind of like 
what I always encourage the viewer, you know, when we're looking for context, right? Kingdom of Context is the name of the channel. We're looking to, to flesh out ideas and find and discern what's being spoken. We don't want to take just one verse and isolate it. We want to look at the broader context. So in this case, it required us reading the full chapter. Then we see, oh, look, 21 verses later, that same statement's repeated, except it's expounded upon. And so after it says the divisions of the days of the law and the testimony, it says, and of the weeks and the jubilees unto eternity, until I descend and dwell with them unto eternity. Mm. So remember, I asked you that question last episode, you know, where I was like, when we read chapter four, I was like, excuse me, we read verse four. And I asked, well, does this imply that there's an end to the law? Right. Because yeah. if he's just telling them the division of the days of the law and the testimony, that means that at some point it's going to be over. Right. But it expounds in verse 25 and it says in the weeks and jubilees unto eternity until and there's a qualifier until I descend and dwell with him throughout eternity. So right. not only is the, the word eternity is used twice here, once in reference to the law and the testimony. And then also there's a there's a added event that happens in this moment where there's a moment in this division of days and law where Yahweh himself dwells and descends with us, with mankind, his inheritance throughout eternity. And so um, that's just beautiful because we see that in the canon at a couple different places. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, brother. Um, yeah, I think that that's actually, um, let me see, I think it's in Revelation 21. Um, I think it's in like the, the first few verses of Revelation 21 where Yahweh literally, you know, descends and um and that's a wonderful promise because right like not just heaven come down to earth but the creator himself you know to come and dwell among mankind and so uh i think it's yeah here in verse three it says and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of god is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and god himself will be among them and he'll wipe every tear wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain and the first things have passed away just a, just a beautiful promise, man. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I can't begin to fathom what that would be like, you know, because we just, we're in an age, and I believe we're at the end of the age, where we just see so much mourning and death and, and despair and despondence, right? And it's to, to just kind of like encapsulate in your mind this utopia to come is like, it's hard to do, but it's, that's, what we're called to do right that's kind of part of being the light to the nations is to have this message of the gospel of the kingdom of god so down pat and so readily available for those who are seeking such a message that it brings joy it brings peace and comfort in this dark age and so yeah brother i mean i can't wait for this i honestly it's gonna yeah. be it's amazing and even the messiah himself yeshua uh reiterates the same concept in john 14 i think it's in verse 23 um he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, there's a plural pronoun, we will come to him and make our home with him. That's right. And, so, and this is that moment being referred to, you know, when this moment, when as Jubilees 125 is, is referencing here, Yahweh descends and dwells with us throughout eternity. Yeah. So it's just. It's we have a father and a son, Sean, two angels coming down and making their homes with us here on this earth plane. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's family, right? <laughs> it's family. Um, Sean, even just um, before we move on, I wanted to kind of go back a couple of verses here. There's some really interesting stuff with regards to uh, verse 23, where it says, 
and their souls will cleave to me and all my commandments and they will fulfill my commandments and I will be their father and they shall be my children. So that whole concept, there's a lot of scriptures that talk about that, right? I mean, yeah. we see in uh, Revelation 21, 7, where it says, he who comes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. So we have the concept of us becoming sons. And I think we get even further elaboration on that in some of the Pauline writings, right? I can, I'll read um, one out of Romans 8, uh, verses 14 and 16, which says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So what's interesting here, Sean, is we know that, I believe Yeshua talks about in one of the um, Gospels that at the resurrection on the last day, we will be made like unto the angels when we will be children of God and um, or sons of God. And we know that back in Genesis 6 and also in Job 1 and 2, it talks about the sons of God, the Benai Ha Elohim in the Hebrew is referring to angelic entities, right? Right. And, when we look back to Romans here, I believe that Paul knows because he had such a clear-cut understanding about the resurrection of the dead and what we become at the resurrection is literally sons of God through this adoption process of the resurrection. And so while we can absolutely refer to ourselves while we're in these bodies of corruptible mortal flesh as God's sons and daughters, there's a literal fulfillment as we've been kind of talking about throughout this episode that takes place on the day of the Lord when we actually get to use that title in its fullest meaning, right? When we actually possess these spirit bodies and, and become the Benai Elohim along with our other brothers of, of light, of, of spirit, these angels. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I think even um, Paul continues to talk about that idea um, about us becoming his sons and adopted in, in Galatians 4. So I think it's, uh, he starts in verse four, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth the son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, father, therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Yeah. Beautiful. He's, he's very consistent, isn't he, Sean, with his message, right? Even quoting the same crying out, Abba, father, when we become adopted sons. So. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. Can you imagine uh, the point of uh, the resurrection? We're all drawn into the new Jerusalem, the wheat taken into the barn, like Matthew 13 talks about. And then there's just a, an incredible shout from the from the throngs of people, you know, just crying out Abba, right? Yeah. In fact, yeah. doesn't doesn't Enoch even talk about that? And there, I can't. I think it's Enoch chapter 59 or 60. Uh, maybe it's chapter 61. Um, there's a um, there's a moment where um, there's silence in heaven and then everybody cries out and praises God and like all the angels, all the resurrected people, even Yeshua himself, like everybody cries to the father. I, I can't remember the verse right now. I think that's going to be in the verse that we're going to have. We're going to review in our Enoch episode yeah. coming up with our special guest. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave that as a, as a teaser uh, for, <laughs> for later. But uh, yeah, I think there's a moment like that. Like I was, that's probably where I got the idea to even yeah. jest about it. Yeah, chapter 61 and 63, I think there's that's that's yeah. all within the same context. That's amazing, brother. Yeah. Um, even in John, though, I mean, John talks about it in, right in the very first chapter of, of his uh, gospel, in verse 12, where it says, But as many as received him, 
To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Right. And that's, and I, I think you and I both believe that there's a little bit more context to what that means by his name, right? It's, it's his authority, his power, his will and all that. But, um, and even John's using this, this proleptic language that, that Paul uses in it and everyone uses really, since it's Paul's a lot more in your face with this, this type of literary device, but, um, it's just fascinating because it's like, yeah, and real quick, just as a, for the viewer, in case you're not familiar, uh, this is a term that, that Ken is mentioning. It's a literary device called prolepsis. And this is something just like another literary device used called poetry, you know, um, the, and metaphor and, you know, the different kind of, you know, an, an, analogies that we see all throughout scripture. There's another literary device that the epistle writers use a lot, and it's called prolepsis. We actually even see Yeshua use it and some of the prophets in the Old Testament use it. But the epistle writers use it like it's like it's nobody's business, like they use it all the time. And it's it's a way of speaking about a topic as if it's already happened, though it hasn't technically happened yet. So it's speak, it's basically what I call faith speech, right? Because you're speaking of something that has not manifested physically or in a reality yet, but is something you're hoping for. But you speak about it as if it's already a reality. And this is called prolepsis. And it's a, and it's just a literary, it's a common literary device. Anyone can look it up. Um, writers use it when, when writing books, right? And so these men who are writers of the epistles, they use this literary device as well, because that's why we're always talking about time qualifiers for certain literal fulfillments of events. Okay. So we're not, we want our language to try to be specific as possible when we discuss some of these bigger ideas. So the viewer is not confused. And if you're trying to study and take notes and follow along, we want people to understand that, you know, that's why we're always saying there's a time qualifier here. Like, let's pay attention to that, right? Because there's a statement made about a topic, but if you don't understand when that topic takes place, you can get lost and fall into all kinds of various strange doctrines. So this is why the Father is so diligent to give us time qualifiers layered all throughout prophecy and throughout these promises for us. And so that's, yeah, just, just so the viewer has an op opportunity to understand what we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. It's 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 a... Uh... A, a device that people should get familiar with and it's it's a, a term that i toss around a lot so thank you for giving that explanation sean it's good yeah. it's almost like i know we had talked about in, in previous episodes um that the prophets that write and record the father's words like the prerequisite to do that is like you have to talk about the day of the lord in it and it's almost like the same thing with prolepsis language it's you have to in incorporate that into your message you know what i mean because it's just like it, do it so often yeah pretty bad. Wow. Now you're reading and verse 23, but verse 24 is, is just so awesome because um, I'll just read it again just real quick. It says, and they shall all should be called children of the living God and every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness and that I love them. So there's two things I want to point out in this particular passage. And the first one is here where it says every angel and every spirit shall know. Now this is actually something that we see in um, in, in the Messiah's words, both in Luke and also in Revelation. And here in Luke 12, uh, he says this kind of concept in verse 8, where he says, And again, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Yeah, so beautiful. that's, so that's cool. pretty, pretty wild, right? And then also, um, I think he mentioned something like this in Revelation 3. Let me go there real quick. And in Revelation 3, he talks about um, 
calling our name out basically before the father as well. So this is, you know, if he's standing in heaven and he's, he has the power to resurrect us and he's calling our name out at the resurrection, then yes, that's how these, every spirit in heaven and every angel will know that that's what, that we are his children. And in verse five, he says in revelation three, five, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, yeah, it's just it's wild here that Jubilees is repeating the same idea, just quickly thrown into this passage. Yeah. Um, and of course, I just for the viewer, Ken and I want to want to, you know, diligently and, and and lovingly make sure people understand that when we use when we talk about this word spirit, that's that's thrown around so often in these apocryphal books that we're not talking about a Casper, the friendly ghost. We're talking about a real living entity of being these angels had physical bodies um, the angels that showed up in Genesis 18 with Abraham, they could eat food. You know what I'm saying? They, um, these, they can pick up and carry people. They can do something. I mean, they can interact in the creation just like we do, except they have like a higher capability to kind of move like the wind, right? They can just come and go um, and disappear at will or reappear at will or descend to heaven, you know, and do their jobs. And so this is why Jesus says in Luke 20, we're promised to be made like them. This is why when Jesus was resurrected, he was exemplifying that same behavior to his disciples, just disappearing, reappearing, you know, just, but yet he still had true flesh that Thomas could, could touch, right. Doubting Thomas could touch. And so, and he, he's making breakfast for them on the beach the next day, you know I'm saying? Or that one morning when Peter jumps in the water and swims toward him. So we have, we have uh, so many examples here of a spirit being, being very tangible, being a very real thing, but instead of being called a human, they're called a spirit. So they're like, a, we're like the species of human, if I could put it like in biological, you know, anthropological terms, they're the species of spirit. And this is why it makes a qualifier here, or, or excuse me, a distinction here where it says in every angel and every spirit shall know, because not every spirit is an angel. Because the word angel just means messenger, which is someone that's been given the task to go with a message to the people down on the ground, right from heaven. And so this concept here is, is making showing just real quick that all the angels, all the messengers who are also spirit beings by classification, right? But they're, but they have their job and their vocation is considered to be like an angel where they have a message to, to bring. But then there's all these other spirits that the, the scriptures talk about that are not sent as angels to be messengers. You see what I mean? And they're, they're also spirit beings that live above in the heavenly realms with the father they have other jobs. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree hundred percent brother. And I can't yeah. actually wait for our next episode with um, our guests on when we go over Jubilee chapter two, where we're going to see a lot more of these, the spiritual classification that you just mentioned um, yeah. elaborated in greater detail. It's, it's, it will blow your mind. It blew my mind when I was studying this stuff and I can't wait to have that conversation, Sean. Yeah. We'll we get to really break it down.
And real quick, the last part of 24, I want to point out for the viewer and for us is just this amazing little moment at the very end where he says, and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness and that I love them. Mm. And that's just like, unless I'm wrong, Ken, and maybe the viewer can help us out. If you can think of any scripture in, in the Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? Which is the, the same information that is synchronous to the book of Jubilees, right? It's kind of the same claim that, that Moses during this time period in the wilderness received the information for these, for these books, right? But if you can think of any time in there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus numbers, where, where the father tells them, I love you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very, I can't think I, I could be wrong. I could be just missing it right now, but yeah, it's um, very, it so, is, it's a unique statement. And you know, it's one of those statements where you, you come across and you're like, Oh, like, I know that the father loves me. And like, even in first John chapter four, he talks about, how you know, God is love and, and all that stuff. And, but, we don't actually see it where it says like out of his mouth and I love my children. I love them. And so yeah. it's, it's beautiful, Sean. It truly is. Yeah. So it's again, like we said that the timing of Jubilees when this is happening is the 40 days and 40 nights, Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and you know, what's about to happen here in a minute is the golden calf incident <laughs> and all the stuff that he's brought them through from the Exodus up until this point, And even, you know, where they were complaining about manna and Exodus 16. So there's already been some, um, some moments here, even in this conversation in chapter one, where Moses is concerned, if I could say it like that, about the disposition of Yahweh towards these people, where he's like, please don't blot them out. Please. They're your inheritance, you know, creating them upright spirit. So they'll do what's, what's right. And then you don't have to, cast them off, you know what I mean? Because he already prophesied, like we went over in last episode, how they'd be scattered amongst the nations for their rebellion. Yeah. And, and so he's already getting a heads up on when they're going to break this covenant and transgress. And it's almost as if the father just throws in there, but I love them. You know what I mean? Just so even if no one else, even Moses can understand after this conversation that Yahweh does love them, you know, yeah. and that's, I feel like that's a big deal. We need to know that, right? Because we, yeah. a lot of us, depending on what denomination you grew up in, have this view of the father as being this ruthless, merciless, you know, individual who's all about destroying people and making people's lives miserable. Not true. Not true at all. So, yeah, it's, yeah, we need, we need to be well aware that the father absolutely does love us and he's going to exemplify that love in ways that are, are going to be on it's well beyond your, your wildest imagination. And, but he's given us examples of what that love is going to look like tangibly, obviously now in the flesh, but in a future different type of flesh. So I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. So Sean in verse 26 here, it says, and he said to the angel of the presence, right from Moses from the beginning of creation till my sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity. And the Lord will appear to the eyes of all, and all shall know that I am the God of Israel, and the Father of all the children of Jacob, and King on Mount Zion for all eternity. And Zion and Jerusalem shall be holy. And the angel of the presence, who went before the camp of Israel, took the tables of the divisions of the years, from the time of the creation, of the law and of the testimony of the weeks and of the jubilees, according to the individual years, according to the number of the jubilees, according to the individual years, from the day of the new creation, when the heavens and the earth shall be renewed and all their creation, according to the powers of the heaven and according to all the creation of the earth until the sanctuary of the Lord shall be made in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and all the luminaries be renewed for healing and for peace and for blessing for all the elect of Israel. 
and that thus it may be from that day and unto all the days of the earth. Wow. Man, there's three little verses, but there's like five hours worth of unpacking right here. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is wild. Hey, quick question. Verse 26. Um, is this... All right, there's something there's something unique about this statement that really sticks out to me. And he says, the angel, he said to the angel of the presence. So this obviously tells us now that there's the angel of the presence that's with them. So yep. this is not, this is uh, and this is also what we've already seen in the book of Exodus, right? This idea of of the angel that goes before them. Yep. Um, he's the same angel that was in the burning bush, he's the same angel that apparently was with them in some capacity during the during the plagues in Egypt, and he's also the one that was in the cloud that was of fire at night cloud by day that was leading the children of Israel out of the Exodus away from Pharaoh, the one that went behind the camp at one point to, to block Pharaoh. Right. And, um, and scare Pharaoh from pursuing and for a moment, but also the one that has been tasked to lead these guys throughout their journey in the wilderness, this whole time, the one in Exodus 23, where Yahweh says, them, says to them, the angel that I'm sending before you will not pardon your sins obey everything I tell him to say to you, right? Obey him because he's basically speaking my message. Yep. And so that's, that's what we're seeing here as well is that this is the angel that's on Mount Sinai with Moses, which I think is fascinating. It's wild. Yeah. It is truly, truly wild. But what he says to him in this first verse strikes a weird, a weird eyebrow raise for me, right? That like the rock, I can't do the rocks eyebrow raise, but, <laughs> but if I could, I would do it right now. So Basically, it says, right from Moses, from the beginning of creation till my sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity. Okay. Is this, is this like inferring that the book of Jubilees is going to be it, like this? That's what we're reading in Jubilees isn't everything that he's being, he's been, been written for Moses from the beginning of creation till my sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity? Yeah, that's that's one that's stumped me as well, Sean. Because I mean, and the reason I ask it like that specifically is because if we focus on the idea of the time qualifier of from the beginning of creation till my sanctuary has been built among them for all eternity, well, that hasn't happened yet. That didn't happen in the tabernacle in the wilderness. That didn't happen at King Solomon's temple, nor the rebuilt temple by Nehemiah and Ezra that was destroyed in AD seventy by the Romans. And there has been no, and the New Jerusalem, which is the prophesied third temple, hasn't come down yet which is the one that will be here for all eternity. So when I read the one and, and Ken and I already have, we've, we've read the rest of the book of Jubilees and there, there are no, um, it, it's, it, there's some prophecy in there that does talk about the day of the Lord and the coming of the, the millennial reign. But it just makes me wonder, like, cause I've, I've studied Genesis through Deuteronomy and all the prophecies that are in, that are in those books you know, that refer to the time period from creation all the way up to the, the, the kingdom come, right? The day that his, his uh, sanctuary is built among them from all eternity. It makes me wonder if Jubilees was supposed to be one of the books supplemented into those first five books. Yeah, Sean, I think after studying this book as much as I have, I, I, I can't help but consider that, that thought because... Yeah. <clears throat> where do we get this idea of you know the traditional five books of moses like do we actually see that anywhere um like for instance in the new testament we always see the uh, the writers and, and the speakers referring to you know the words of moses the writings of moses right or the law 
Um, how do we know that it's only the five books? Where does that come from exactly? That that narrative of it's only Genesis through Deuteronomy. Right, because that's never specifically stated. That's right. Yeah. And then we're just having to trust Judaism, basically, with their version of history, which if anyone's followed our channels for any length of time, you know that we are not proponents of Judaism, um, that we feel that that is a offshoot of the instructions given to of to Yah from Yahweh to the children of Israel. And that is not actually how to follow Yahweh. That's added commands with their own unique Gnostic flair that they've in, infused in there in various ways and uh, their own eisegesis rampant over many of, of God's basic instructions. And um, we do not follow or hear or promote or teach Judaism in any regard, but because they're the only ones who claim to have still retained the scriptures, so to speak throughout the years, even though all these all these books have been found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but even before that, all these you know people just look to basically traditional rabbis when they wanted to to go to try to find a valid uh, academically credited Old Testament document, right? Right. They would just be like, oh, just the, the rabbis must have it, so that must be you know what's going on, and it could be. I'm you know it's all I know is that the Book of Jubilees was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls along with all the other books in the Old Testament. Um, and it was also part of the Ethiopian Orthodox canon that has rejected Judaism. <laughs> we have that, that kind of active testimony of those brothers out there in, in the land of Ethiopia and Etria, and, and their canon would possibly consider Jubilees as being part of the law of Moses, right? As, yeah. as right here in this verse, this would be part of their, their collection of writings that would include everything from the beginning until the Yahweh sanctuary comes in their midst. Yeah, they do. They do. And there's actually some things in Jubilees. It's like we, we, we won't have time to get into this episode, but there's, there's quite a few things in Jubilees that Judaism would not like to accept that would, would butt up against some of the things promoted by Judaism. So yeah. um, it would make perfect sense if they tried to exclude this book from what they considered canon. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So in verse 27, um, what do we have here? We have the Lord appearing before everybody and everyone's going to know that he's the God of Israel and the father of, of the children of Jacob and king on Mount Zion for all eternity. We know that uh, Mount Zion is going to kind of be his, his domain, right? His, his, where he roosts essentially and where the law goes forth into mm -hmm. all the lands that are outside the new Jerusalem because they're going to be you know, that's going to be put that law of the land when, when the father and his son come, that's the constitution that everyone's going to be living by. So that's, that's yeah, he says the Lord will appear to the eyes of all. And this is a, a unique part here. Um, not only did we already give some verses, you know, like in revelation 21, three and four, um, I think it's also in revelation 21, 22, where it talks about the God almighty and the lamb are the light of the temple or the light of the new Jerusalem. Um, but this idea here is, uh, now, when we see, we see the word Lord, Ken, do we think that this is referring to Yahweh or referring to the Son? Well, you know, honestly, Sean, I can see how it could work both ways. But if you continue kind of looking forward into some of the context there, I, I do believe that it's referring by proxy to the Son. Yeah. Yeah, because he's talking about being king on Zion. That's right. And so that's why I actually um, wanted to pull up Psalm 2 again real quick, just so people can see the dichotomy of what Yahweh says will happen as far as who becomes the king in his stead on Zion. And 
So we start uh, again in verse six real quick in Psalm two, it says, but as for me, if I installed my king up on Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Verse eight, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yeah, that's, I mean, so, right there is a yeah. good indicator, Sean, that this is, you know, everything has been given to the Son, right? After right. me, it will be all yours, and he he deserves it. He, yeah. Yeah. All authority in heaven and earth is given by the Father to the Son, which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 and 24, it says, once all powers and authority has been put under the feet of Yeshua, even death itself, then he turns and hands back the kingdom over to the Father. That's right. Now, this doesn't mean that he's going to um, stop reigning as king. It's still going to be father and son on the ground. Yeshua is going to be a king and high priest eternally. It's just going to mean he's that the purpose has been accomplished for that specific type of authority. And he's going to basically say, look, and, and that's why verse, I think it's verse 24, 25 and 1 Corinthians 15 says, so that God can be all in all, so that Yahweh the Father can be all in all. Because the Son was always pointing to Yahweh the Father. Yes, uh, absolutely. Even so, I this verse right here is, is can trip people up is what I'm getting at, right? Because they if they don't understand the dichotomy of the Father and the Son and how that's presented throughout the prophets and the canon, they can be very confused by this passage. But if I were to read it and say, and the Lord will appear to the eyes of all. We've already established that it's going to be both the Father and the Son, and they're reigning in the same seat of authority. And it says, and all shall know that I am the God of Israel and the Father of all the children of Jacob and the King on Mount Zion for all eternity. And Zion and Jerusalem should be holy. Now, this word Father here is interesting, isn't it, Kim? Yes, because we see actually um, Yeshua referred to as the Father in, in Isaiah's ninth chapter. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, I can go ahead and read that, I guess. Sure, so, yeah. Do you have that available? Yeah, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. A lot of people are familiar with this, Sean, and they, they like to use this for Trinitarian purposes, but I think there's a little more context built behind it. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. <laughs> yeah. You did a really good informative um, morning cup of context on this, Sean. Well, I think um, if you look in Isaiah 22, um, if you look up just, just so the viewer can have it, because like you said, there's a lot of, people that believe in Trinitarianism that will use that verse as their foundational leg. Yeah. Right. And they think, well, look right here, it's telling us that God, there is no son that God came in the flesh and called himself a son. You know what I mean? And yeah. look, Isaiah nine, six through nine just points it out right here. Well, let's look a little deeper yeah. and let's look in Isaiah 22, just real quick, because we have another use of the term father in relationship to being a king over other peoples. And so if we look here in Isaiah 22, verse 20, it says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eli Eliakim, the son of Hokiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and the sash securely about him, and I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. 
So right there, the context just completely marries the two ideas that a king is referred to in a metaphorical sense as a father over the peoples because he is their authority. Yeah, that's the second witness, Jean, for sure. For that. Exactly. That's great. So it's it's amazing that you know we have the same the same literary concept being spoken in, in Julius one twenty seven, where he says that I am the God of Israel and the Father of all the children of Z Jacob and King on Mount Zion for all eternity. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just it's just beautiful. It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, Sean, even back in Isaiah nine six, where it says, "In His name will be called Wonderful Counselor." Uh, I think it's really important for viewer to understand this this concept of what it means to be doing things in the name or in his name or coming in his name and um i know we've talked at great lengths about what that is but just just for viewers purposes when you're doing that you're you're coming in the authority in the will and the power of someone who has sent you right as a messenger or someone who's proclaiming something or doing something for the one who sent you and so when we kind of plug that um right into that verse in isaiah 9 6 so when it says in, in his name, we can just, it can simply mean as in his authority, his authority will be proclaimed wonderful counselor. He will be an authority of the mighty God and the eternal father and the prince of peace. Instead of just thinking that, well, it must be that his name literally is somehow this, right? Because we see that a lot. It's, it, there is, as you've said, more context built into these um, concepts that, that, that we really do need to, as serious Bible students, look into. Yeah, 100% agree, Ken. In fact, even uh, Psalm 45 continues on with the same idea that we saw in Isaiah that Jubilees 1 is, is referencing here. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, a little bit of a breakdown for the viewer just real quick. Now we're looking at how in the world can God, your God, anoint you, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is this is why the Messiah was always intended to be to be sitting in the place of the authority of the Father, to whom we will reference as God, right? Because this is what this actually this passage is repeated in Hebrews chapter one, verse nine and ten, because it's it's not even using the word Yahweh, but it's using the word Elohim, right. where it says in this passage, therefore Elohim, your Elohim has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. And that is what it, it's Yeshua, who is the first of the church, the firstborn among the dead, first fruits of the first resurrection of the saints, king of Israel. That's what verse six was talking about. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom <clears throat> and your throne is forever and ever. So this concept of it's referring to the son, speaking about how the father gave him that position and has anointed him with the oil of joy above your fellows. That's actually a, um, the oil of joy is an idiomatic reference to the resurrection that we see all throughout the Old Testament. And he does, he, he's already experienced the first resurrection before anyone else. And he is above us. He is our elder. He is our father, our king, our Elohim, our God. And this is why it's it's talking like that. So it's, yeah, it's uh, which is just another great parallel to Isaiah 9, 6. Yeah. So. And, and it's, it's really fascinating kind of what's going on there where it says, therefore God, or therefore Elohim, your Elohim, has anointed you, you being Yeshua, right? And so we know that what happened when Yeshua resurrected, Sean, when when Mary went to go kind of cling on to him, he said, no, don't do that. I haven't yet ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So this, this runs perfectly with this passage in Psalm here with this concept of Yahweh Elohim being Yeshua Elohim as well. So yeah, absolutely. very cool. 
28 is big, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of fun stuff packed into to verse 28 that I see is paralleled in the canon. And of course, we got another reference to this angel of the presence who went before the camp of Israel. So now it's telling us exactly what we already talked about, that there is an angel in the cloud of fire. And and this and this is what we're told in the canon, too. But for some reason, Ken, people just seem to not catch that part. They, they don't really think of an actual literal angel that was walking before them to whom the father said, he will not pardon your sins. <laughs> like this guy's not your high priest. This guy's not your mediator. He's this guy, you know, is the brute squad. You know what I'm saying? This is your protector. You know what I mean? Like this guy is not to be trifled with. And so, um, which is why he was the messenger, the angel of the presence of God, whom spoke the message of God, which is why in Exodus 33 at the tent of meeting, it says the glory cloud dropped down and the angel spoke to Moses. And you're like, whoa, you know, it's just, can you, so like it says that Yahweh spoke to Moses, but the angel was the one always given this message every single time. It wasn't a big, you know, thundering voice from heaven, like at the baptism of Yeshua. Right. So it was like this angel, this, um, this angel's literally physical form that they could see just chilling in a cloud in the air above them. And then he drops down and then it starts walking toward Moses to talk to him. I, to me, like that's, that's <laughs> like super blockbuster moment right there. Right. That's, that's a movie moment that you'd want to see on screen. Yeah, I agree. I agree, brother. Um, and this is a, yet another reason why I can't wait to have the discussion with Jubilees, too, because we get to see that there are spirits of the clouds and spirits of fire, right? And right. so th- there's many spirits out there that manifest in certain ways. And, and I'm not going to give any, any details because I want to kind of leave it as a, as a kind of a, a cliffhanger. But it, join us, please, for that episode because it's going to be a really wild one. You're going to learn a lot about your spiritual brothers above. So, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And actually, John, if I could just add one more thing, or um, in verse 28 here in Jubilees 1, where it says, uh, When the heavens and the earth shall be renewed and all their creation according to the powers of the heaven. So, these powers, right? We, we, all, we hear Paul talk about the powers. And we actually see that in another extra biblical book that you and I touched base on last season, the Apocalypse of Abraham. And I'm just going to read something real quick out of that, Sean, in Apocalypse of Abraham, uh, 19, verse 26 here. It says, and I looked downwards from the mountain on which I stood in the sixth firmament. So Abraham is on the top. He's on the highest firmament, the seventh heaven you know, seven, seven, and he's looking down and he's seeing all the different firmaments and what's contained within them. And he's seeing here in the sixth firmament and he says, and there I saw a multitude of angels of pure spirit without bodies. So he's giving us even more detail that, wait a minute, there's angels that do have bodies, which we know, right, Sean, you talked about earlier. You said they're not of mankind, but they do appear as men. We even see that in the text. When you're reading a kind of plain, straightforward, it says, and the men showed up or whatever, and Jacob was wrestling with the man. And like, that's another one of the characteristics of certain angels, certain uh, spiritual classifications here. But here back in Apocalypse of Abraham, it says that these specific angels in the sixth firmament didn't have bodies, but they were of spirit and whose duty was to carry out the commands of the fiery angels who were upon the seventh firmament above them. And he says, as I was standing suspended over them and behold, upon this sixth firmament, there were no other powers of any form, save only the angels of pure spirit. So when we're referring to these powers and he goes on to actually talk about powers even below that firmament and back up above that firmament, 
it's just referring to the spiritual classification of, of the different entities that Yahweh created, right? And so just just for you know clarification on what are these powers referring to? It's all these different angelic creatures that are contained within the certain specific firmament layers that the father placed them within on creation day. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's amazing, brother. It's truly amazing. And, um, and for people to really understand that concept, to understand the, the difference, I think it's very important when you're reading scripture, to, because we've been sold this Gnostic idea over time that the, the, the realm of the father's house and these angelic spirits and all the different types of them, that it's not tangible, that it's not actually concrete, that it's not something you could actually hold or grab, but that it's just, it's, it's undefinable in some other realm of existence, some other dimensionality. Like it's very, it's Gnosticism is what it's being described as. Whereas the scriptures describe something very, very specific and tangible, something that you can reach out and grab and touch, something that can interact with our creation perfectly um, because they were made with the creation. <laughs> it's the same creation up there with waters and mountains and lands and trees above the firmament um, with abodes and homes and you know what I'm saying? And food and water. And it's the same kind of creation that we exist in down here, except that our enclosure down here below this, this base level of the firmament, basically um, we've, we've done a really good job of corrupting it. So yeah. that's, you know, that's why it's not called holy. It's not called set apart. It, it needs to be renewed. And that's kind of the idea that's being referenced here in this last verse where it talks about and according to all the creation of the earth until the sanctuary of the Lord should be made in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and all the luminaries be renewed for healing and for peace and for blessing for all the elect of Israel. And so this is something that we see prophesied um, in many, many different places. I'll just go to one real quick here. In Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2, it says, then this is, of course, John in Revelation speaking of the vision he's seen. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, making ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I always try to remind folks that we're reading the, this verse in Greek, and then I encourage folks to go look into the Greek of, for these passages here, because people think, for one, people don't, Ken, people don't realize or remember the definition of the word heaven itself that is defined in Genesis 1, verse 6 through 8 as the firmament, which is a solid, arched, strong, clear substance, like a structure. That is a supporting structure. It's supporting waters that are still above it from the initial creation. And this is, it, there's not an outer space with no barrier. This is the actual barrier above us um, that is connecting us to the, the other layers of the firmament above where the father lives. And this of course is prophesied in Isaiah 34, Matthew 24, 29 is going to be rolled back. This firmament, this heaven is rolled back like a scroll on the day of the Lord, which is allowing the new Jerusalem to come down. So it's refashioned. And that's what, that's actually what this word being used in Revelation 21 in the Greek, that's what the word means. It's not neos, as in brand new, it's kainos, as in refashioned. And that's why it's using the word new heaven and new earth. It's saying a refashioned heaven and a refashioned piece of land. And that's the earth, the piece of land. And the word earth is generic, you know, because in the, the haretz in the Hebrew just means piece of land. It's not a word specifically talking about the whole earth but a specific piece of land, which is what he expounds upon to say he sees coming down yeah. out of the firmament is this new Jerusalem. And he goes on to describe it as 1500 square miles, a huge piece of land. Um, and as we looked into last season, the book of Enoch goes into great depth to explain there's mountains in this land, there's rivers and trees and water and all kinds of places. You know, it's a huge, huge area. Yeah. And so that's, that's what's going on. So when this happens though, Ken, the sun, moon and stars are affected. 
that's why they have to be renewed as as um jubilees one is mentioning here that the luminaries the sun moon and stars have to be renewed because as we're told um i believe it's uh isaiah 34 4 matthew 24 29 and also revelation 6 uh 13 it says at the when this when the ferment is rolled back the stars literally fall to the ground because yeah. they're sitting in water above us and so that they're falling to the earth like leaves off a fig tree and i think that that's that's amazing but that's why they have to be renewed <laughs> yeah no it's it's so so cool to try to like conceptualize that and and, and piece that together in your mind right but um there in verse one of revelation 21 where it says john says i saw a new or a renewed heaven the greek word there for heaven is uranos right sean and just like um in the hebrew the Shemaim, it, it, it can be plural, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily singular. It can be plural there. So, Because we I'm see just, multiple heavens, multiple firmament layers all throughout Scripture in the canon. Right. That's right. And so I'm just wondering, Sean, because I also agree with you that the new earth of Revelation 21.1 is referring to the, the new land that comes down um, and sets itself upon the boundaries of the land boundaries on our earth plane is that heaven might actually be plural in this sense. I could be wrong where it says that he saw refashioned heavens because if the new Jerusalem um, is paradise, which we do believe, and Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the new Jerusalem or paradise rather is in the third firmament, it's the third heaven. And, and if it's gonna come down. Through a couple of them, right? That's right, yeah, that's right. It's, it's really interesting to consider that because if this thing is going through a few of these layers, right? And so I, I think it might be plural there. And it's, I don't know personally where the stars are. I know you just said you think that the stars are in the water and the waters above our, the firmament above our heads. That could very well be. But this is why I love these other apocryphal books that, that talk about the details contained within the firmaments, right? Where all these things are, are situated. Because I think the yeah, stars are somewhere else. Than, than yeah, just to make a, a blanket statement to say the stars are above us and the waters above, as Psalm 148.4 says, doesn't specifically detail which firmament layer they're in. That makes sense. So yeah. that's that's where I, they could be in the fifth layer. They could be in the fourth layer because they're all see through. It seems like <laughs> um, that's what we looked at last year. Remember in the Pox of Abraham, where he was looking down is like the sixth firmament just kind of ro rolled back away from his feet, and he could see down into the fifth firmament. Yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's just wild stuff. But I, I agree, brother, that it, it really is important to understand Genesis one and and the language that's used regarding this firmament and how it was called heaven right yeah and that's um yeah yeah that it's yeah. not and it's, and it's a structure it's not just a it's it's not just an open space like the whole point of it was just to explain that god built an actual house with multiple layers and we're kind of like on one of the bottom layers yeah you know and which is why story, he's literally right? called the most high exactly exactly and it's like any story we want to understand the place setting within the story and this is kind of an integral piece of the setting right of, of yeah. we always created models so so as far as I can tell, this last verse definitely lines up with what's described in the canon. Yeah. Not just for prophecy, but also for the descriptions of the creation model itself. I agree. So it's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing, man. This book, Jubilees, is just quite fascinating. Um, unless unless you have anything else, Ken, I, you know, this may be the end of the episode, but. Yeah, I think we're good. I think we've we've had some good conversations here. I know we could continue on with a lot of these. We don't want to belabor it though. We want to get onto other things, but uh, it's been fun as usual, Sean. 
Yeah, um, I'm excited, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for, for sticking with us to the end. If you haven't already been to hanging on his words to like, share, and subscribe, make sure you do that. That's Ken's channel. And then here on Kenny McContacts, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Hit the bells for notifications on both channels so you don't miss out when we put new videos out. Um, and as always, we encourage folks to test things with the context of Scripture, which requires us reading before and after the passage and looking for whatever we're reading about, whatever that concept is, we're looking about look in the other books of the scripture to see where that's spoken about in other places to give us a fuller context of how that's being described. And that'll help us avoid falling into, you know, uh, poor understanding. That'll help us, you know, come into a fuller enriched understanding of these concepts, which is what we're trying to provide and show here as we look for these places in these apocryphal books and these books that were not put in the canon. We're trying to find parallels within the modern American canon of 66 to see just how well they do line up or if it was a good decision to take them out. So from what I can tell so far, Ken, it looks like this book of Jubilees, I don't know, it looks like, it, in my opinion, it maybe should have been included in the American canon, but just wasn't. I agree, brother. Um, I think that the American canon should reconsider other canons that are out there, namely yeah. the Eastern Orthodox canon and, and just see why exactly they have that in it because I agree with our brothers there in that part of the world. And um, and those particular brothers, by the way, they reject Judaism and they accept Jesus, right? They accept Yeshua. Yeah. And so I think that that's just, I mean, it's a huge living testament. And, and by the way, they're literal genetic living descendants of Levites from, from the days of Solomon. So it's just amazing, man. Um, it's a truly amazing book. And I, I wish I'd had access to this kind of book growing up reading Genesis to Deuteronomy because um, the following chapters, as the angel continues to talk to Moses and explains all the stuff that Moses is you know, going to be writing down, he expounds on the greater history of the patriarchs. And we get all kinds of fun information about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we don't get in the, in Genesis it just makes so much more relevant. And we see that they were already, you know, there's they, the father led them at every point of the way because he loved them. And we see just how faithful to his covenant they were and, it's just, this is a fascinating book, fascinating book. We get prophecy in here in chapter six that talks about um, the end of days and, and the course of the moon, different kinds of things. Like there's some amazing, amazing stuff in here. Um, so I'm excited that we're going to look next episode. We're going to have some special guests with us. We're going to look into chapter two and break that down. And it's going to be a power packed episode. So I hope that you join us next time. Yeah. Ken, anything, any concluding remarks? Yeah, I was just going to say thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for watching. And uh, obviously, Sean and I are, are word nerds. We're, we, we, just, we geek out when it comes to this stuff. But we know that there's others out there like us who are super passionate about the Father's Word and enjoy all the details, right? I mean, why not? The Father's given it all for us to understand. So why not, why not dig into it? And so I just want to thank you for, for joining us on this quest. And we look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thank you. Come back and see us next week here on Honor of Kings. Appreciate you.